кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. As Ukraine continues to make incremental gains in its counteroffensive against occupying Russian forces in the east, Moscow is conducting a quieter offensive of its own in other parts of the former Soviet Union. With the world's attention on Ukraine, the Kremlin is stealthily and sometimes not so stealthily seeking to consolidate hegemony over Belarus, Georgia, and Moldova. So how is Moscow's other quieter war progressing, and what can be done to stop it? Well, my guest today recently published an important article on that subject and will help us all break it down. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood. And welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and the author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the MDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So, Jeff, your recent article in Foreign Policy, Next Door to Ukraine, Moscow's Grip is Tightening, could not have been more timely. And I say this having just returned from a trip to Georgia. And to get us ruling, I wanted to quote directly from your piece. You write the following. Along with the invasion of Ukraine, Russia's efforts to establish domination over Belarus, Georgia, and Moldova are part of a wider Kremlin campaign to upend the post-Cold War settlement in Europe. The United States and European Union have taken commendable action to help Ukraine resist Russia's onslaught, but have done too little to help Russia's other imperiled neighbors. They should provide additional assistance and a realistic path to deeper Euro-Atlantic integration to ensure these states do not fall back under the sway of an aggressively imperial Kremlin. So let's break these down one at a time. And since, of course, I just returned from Tbilisi, let's start with Georgia a country that, was, that once had a staunchly pro-Western government, but which has been backsliding on democracy for several years now under the governing Georgian Dream Party and its leader, the pro-Russian oligarch, Idzina Ivanishvili. The European Union is set to decide whether to grant Georgia candidate status in October, and EU foreign policy chief Josep Borrell was in the Georgian capital this week where he said that candidate, I'm quoting candidate status, needs to be earned through serious reforms and adherence to European Union values. And to be frank, there is still a lot of work to be done. Georgia's pro-Western opposition is divided over whether candidate status would be a good thing at this point, as it would reward the ostensibly pro-Moscow government for its democratic backsliding. Some, including the former Deputy Foreign Minister and National Security Advisor, Giga Bakaria, who I spoke with in Tbilisi, are arguing that it would be better to get to have the EU reject candidate status and have this issue of European integration on the ballot in the next election in 2024. And while the overwhelming majority of support Georgians support Ukraine and hope that a Russian defeat there would lead to a retrenchment of Kremlin power in their country, many worry the opposite could happen and Moscow might lash out and take Georgia as a consolation prize. So those are my main takeaways from a week in Georgia. Jeff, how do you see the situation unfolding? Yeah, pretty similarly. Um, I haven't been in Georgia since last year. So, um, it, you know, I think your sense of the mood on the ground is is more current. But um, based on what you just said, I, I don't feel like a lot has changed uh, in the past year. You know, the, the Georgian Dream Party has been in power now for a decade, really. And over the course of, of that period, there's been a kind of attempt to um, talk a good game on European integration and on some of the um, the values and, and reforms that that, that would require. Uh, but in practice, there's been a real uh, backsliding and, and people, when I was in, in Tbilisi last year, talked about state capture uh, uh -huh. by people close to Ivanashvili and, and some of the other uh, financial backers of, of Georgian Dream. And of course, that goes hand in hand with Russian influence because of where the money that those financial backers are putting in um, actually comes from. 
And then just on top of that, I, I think this issue has become really acute uh, here in, in Washington because of the war in Ukraine, uh, where Georgia's attitude has, or I should say official Georgia's attitude has been um, somewhat uh, surprising, disappointing, um, even though there's a lot of uh, public support uh, for Ukraine. And I remember when I was there uh, last year, there were lots of Ukrainian flags visible yep. uh, around Tbilisi, pro-Ukrainian graffiti, anti-Russian graffiti um, all over. You know, people uh, didn't want to speak Russian, even if they did. Uh, so the public sentiment, and, you know, Tbilisi is not necessarily indicative of the country as a whole, um, but is a pretty good uh, sample, I guess. Um, certainly in Tbilisi, there is a very strong uh, anti-Russian sentiment, um, and yet the, the government policy uh, has been uh, much more, not even uh, neutral, but maybe sort of neutral with, uh, actually, can we not say that? Can we cut that part? Yeah. Um, the government policy has been um, certainly more... Uh, wary, more uh, inclined to uh, stay away from uh, requests on the part of, of Ukraine or, or Georgia's Western partners uh, to aid Ukraine. Uh, and I think there are good political reasons for that, good security reasons for that. But I think there's also the impact of this kind of uh, malign Russian influence, the financial backing of people with ties to Russia uh, and the like that that's getting at it. And so uh, there's really this kind of, of split in Georgia uh, between a, a public that still seems pretty strongly pro-Western and a, a government, a ostensibly popularly elected government, um, that seems to be uh, adopting a position uh, on the war in Ukraine that's that's out of line with where the bulk of the population is. Yeah, no, I would say it's even starker than that, Jeff. I mean, I, it's gotten, I think, this gap between the pro-Western uh, society, 85%, according to the last public opinion poll, want to integrate with the European Union. Um, and, and the government, which is moving ever close, it's not even playing neutral anymore. And it's barely even paying, paying lip service to the European Union anymore. Um, they're, 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 they're definitely paying lip service to it. I mean, I get the, you know, the bulletins that the, the ruling party sends out on a pretty regular basis. And it's a thing that, you know, the English language ones, it's a thing that they emphasize all the time. Um, but I think on, in terms of the, the practical steps that they're taking, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going in the other direction. They're not, they're not fulfilling any of the conditions the European Union set or very few of them. Um, my, my good friend, Georgi Kondalakia, Kondalakia, who was a guest in the podcast a few weeks back, who is a former MP in Georgia, um, with European, with European Georgia, he, he wrote a piece that Russia's, Russia's losing in Ukraine, but winning in Georgia. And he notes mm -hmm. how, how a lot of trends of the government is drifting closer to to Russia, and then the the the, the new thing here is the the exploitation of the cult of Stalin. Um, in the last year alone, eleven new Stalin statues. Have been. Yeah, and this is yeah. used by these pro-Russian ostensive Georgian nationalists, which is a kind of a contradiction. Yeah, but well, yeah, this is the upside-down world we live in now. The government's also playing footsie with China. Mm -hmm. uh, the, there's rumors now that that, that China is going to get involved in this Anaklia port project that the United States was pushing a few years back that the government backed out of. So there's 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 uh there it, it's it's gotten even more stark, and yeah. the debate that I among the opposition about and, and overwhelmingly most of the opposition wants to uh to to get candidate status despite the government's backsliding, but there is a vocal faction in the opposition, um, led mainly by Giga Bakaria, the former deputy foreign minister yeah. and close Saakashvili advisor and the former national security advisor, who thinks it would be a bad thing and that the, this should be put on the ballot i am agnostic on this where do you how do you how do you assess this is this would candidate status help because i know in your piece you argued for rapid euro euro atlantic integration for for these three countries we'll get into the recommendations mm -hmm. in the second half of the program but how do you how do you see this yeah i mean i'm sympathetic to the argument that you're you're laying out here that there has to be a, a path to integration but it it's conditions based um and i think Giving, um, making that uh, an issue in the upcoming elections, especially if 85% of the public is supportive of EU integration, I mean, I think that makes sense. Um, I think what I'm arguing for in the piece is that the the EU and NATO, and of course, you know, the, the EU is one thing, but NATO has promised Georgia membership already, right. um, that they have to be prepared to follow through on those promises. 
And based on what we saw at the most recent NATO summit, um, when it came to Ukraine, which is in a lot of ways even more advanced down the path towards integration, um, there was a, a real reluctance to to give substance to those promises, as there has been since they were first made in 2008. Um, and so I think that you know that the lure of, of integration is is a really powerful tool that the Euro Atlantic world has, um, and we've been willing to use it rhetorically. Uh, we've been willing to use it in places where you know we're not particularly worried about the Russian reaction or where the worry about the Russian reaction is is somewhat contained. And you know, in places like North Macedonia or, or Montenegro, where there has been a, a pretty serious Russian reaction. Um, but when it comes to Ukraine and Georgia, you know, the promises were made, and whether they should have been made or not is a separate question. But they were made, and now right. having been made, I think it's incumbent on those institutions to give substance to them and not just you know, symbolically, but it, it concrete. Well, you know, the Georgia wasn't even invited to the to the to the NATO yeah. summit after the prime minister made a remark blaming the war in Ukraine on NATO enlargement, yeah. which is the yeah. ultimate ironic <laughs> statement. And this is something Kondalaki points out in his in his piece for the Atlantic Council. Um, and so that I mean, that was just that 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 was I mean, I'm not shocking, but it but it was um, it was very telling about yeah. where things are now. The other thing is on the ground, there, there is fear that the situation in Georgia is coming to a head. A lot of people think it's headed for a Maidan-type situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, this kind of gap between where the government is and where the society is cannot last. Yeah. And so they think it's headed for that. And there is fear. there are fears that should it come to that, you could see Russian intervention, overt Russian intervention. Now, I wonder if Russia is going to have the bandwidth for that, mm -hmm. frankly. Um, there's also fears that if Ukraine is victorious, that Russia might grab Georgia as a consolation prize. Do you see the the threat of kinetic Russian action in mm -hmm. Ukraine as as real in, in Georgia? In Georgia, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And again, this this was a thing I heard last year um, that win or lose in Ukraine, uh, Georgia was in the Kremlin's uh, sights, um, and. You know, when I was there, I was talking to people who were pro-government as well as, as anti-government, and the pro-government people's argument was, we can't afford to have any distance between ourselves and Russia because we make ourselves vulnerable if we do. Um, I think there's a limited degree of truth to that, but as you were saying, and as we've seen in some of the more recent steps that this government has taken, they've gone far beyond that, uh, and it's not merely hedging, it, it's kind of adopting openly uh, positions that are openly supportive of, of Russian positions. Um, and anti and against NATO, um, but whether Russia has the bandwidth or not, I mean, I think it's worth keeping in mind. Georgia's a small, small country, yeah, and twenty percent of its territory is already occupied. There's a Russian military presence in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Um, the Georgian military is probably in better shape than it was in 2008, but nevertheless, so is the Russian military. And I don't think it would take a major, major incursion to um, have some kind of a real political impact in Georgia. And I mean, it's not just the military either. I mean, when you think about what this could look like, it's the security services, you know, all of these kind of paramilitary or quasi-military forces as well. Um, and, you know, I, I think the worry that I heard when I was in Tbilisi was that Russia can do this even if they're fighting in Ukraine because Georgia's a rounding error from the perspective of the Russian military. Right, right. And 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 the government is playing on these fears of war in Georgia at the moment. Um the the I was I was in Tbilisi to attend the Tbilisi International Conference, which is sponsored by the McCain Institute and the George W. Bush Institute, two figures um who have iconic status mm. in Georgia, especially yeah. McCain, but 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 Bush as well. And historically, at this conference, there were government representatives. This year, there weren't. Mm -hmm. um, not only were there not government representatives, Georgians, uh, the pro, the pro regime media was attacking the conference, calling the attendees radicals who want to drag Georgia into a war. Yeah. Right. So that's the re that's the level of the rhetoric, right? Um, and the, I mean, that's the and that's uh, the rhetoric about the opposition in Georgia too. I mean, in in the government controlled media or the pro government media. This is the argument about why you shouldn't support the opposition. It's because they're radical nationalists, you know, uh, the echoes of the fascist junta in Ukraine, right? Or the alleged fascist junta in Ukraine, um, 
people are going to drag Georgia into a confrontation with Russia that it can't win and that the West isn't going to be there in Georgia's hour of need. Right. I mean, this is this is one with no easy solution, actually, that I that, that I see. I don't know if you if, if you see how and again, we're going to get into Western policy responses in the second half. But I just have a hard time imagining how how we thread this needle in Georgia right now, given the given the given the current kind of correlation of forces as, as they are. We do have a situation of state capture. Right. Um, Ivani Shvili's fortune, uh, even though it's not probably not even his fortune, it probably is, belongs to to, to the CC Kredit and, and Gazprom. But um, but it is bigger than the Georgian state budget. And so we basically do have a, a sense of uh, of of uh, of state capture there. Um, let's move to now to another tricky one. And that's Belarus, um, yeah, which tricky. <laughs> but, I mean, they're all tricky. Um, Belarus, I mean, we basically since August of 2020, when Lukashenko needed to rely on Putin to put down uh, anti-government uh, protests in, after after the fixed election in August of 2020, Russia's conducted what I've called, I used to write the column on Belarus for the Atlantic Council, a soft annexation, effectively, a steady spread of uh, expansion of the, uh, the Russian footprint there, political, military, and economic. Um, but at the same time, you see Belarusian society, which has historically been pro-Russian, moving in an increasingly pro-Western direction. So you have these, again, not as stark as Georgia, but you have kind of countervailing trends in Belarus. How do you see that? Yeah. So on the one hand, we've spent a lot of time, and I think we've done it on this podcast in the past, talking about Putin's view of Ukraine and how he has this idea that Russians and Ukrainians are one people. And this isn't an idea that's limited to Putin. This is pretty widespread among mm -hmm. the Russian political class and, and, and the Russian intellectual elite. We don't usually talk about Belarus in those conversations because it's, it's often an afterthought. But the mentality that underpins that ideology about Ukraine applies just as much to Belarus. And the assumption in Moscow and in, in sort of Russian intellectual circles that the idea of Belarus or that the Belarusian nation is a real thing... Um, is just kind of as incomprehensible as the idea that Ukraine or the Ukrainian nation. Um, and in some ways, Belarus is a harder problem than Ukraine because over the course of previous centuries into the 20th century, it was much more Russified than Ukraine was. So you have a significant portion of the population that's Russophone um, that identifies with the Russian Orthodox Church um, and that sort of sees its political future, its, its political past, but also its political future sort of bound up with Russia. And this is the element that, that Lukashenko uh, represents or, or embodies. Uh, you had something similar with a figure like Viktor Yanukovych in, in Ukraine, Ukraine yeah. um, who was, you know, tied to Russian elite networks, spoke Russian, you know, may have been Ukrainian, a Ukrainian citizen, but his identity, his sense of, of who he was and who his country was, it was maybe Russian, but maybe it was Soviet uh, in the sense of being part of this, you know, Moscow dominated sort of imperial space. And in Ukraine, that was very contested. And that contestation resulted, of course, in Yanukovych being booted out of power and the Euromaidan and the the real push for, uh, for transformation and, and integration of the West. Belarus, I think there's a similar dynamic at play, but the correlation of forces is a little bit different because of the level of, of Russification that's taken place over the years. And so the the sense of, of Belarusian national identity is not as deeply rooted or as widespread as it is in Ukraine. Now, I think what you're seeing, and this was part of the protests in 2020 that you were talking about, is there's a younger generation that's been growing up in an independent Belarus that has a more... Um, Nationalistic's not quite the right word, but maybe a patriotic sense of themselves as Belarusians. And that was completely anathema, not just to the Kremlin, but to Lukashenko. Um, and so, like, I find it really striking that Lukashenko, who's the president of allegedly independent Belarus since 1994, has cracked down on the use of the Belarusian language. Uh, or displays of the Belarusian uh, national flag, the uh, white, red, white flag. I mean, if what national leader bans the use of the national symbols of his own country? 
Um, and so the fact that not only you could do that, but that that was accepted by a significant percentage of the population was, was really, really striking. Um, but again, there is this kind of shift. I think there is the, this younger generation that's used to being uh, citizens of an independent Belarusian state that's rediscovering some of the ethnic and linguistic and historical roots of Belarusian distinctiveness. And a lot of that was, you know, driving this uh, opposition to Lukashenko, this identification with Europe. And I don't think that there's uh, a way for, you know, Lukashenko to coexist with sort of a group of, of people who have that kind of outlook. And so, you know, we've had this really sort of repressive uh, response. And it's telling that for Lukashenko, it was preferable to invite in the Russians, who, of course, once you invite them in, are not going to go away. Right. And, um, rather than make some kind of pact or, or bargain with this, you know, burgeoning um, national movement. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think as far as securing Belarus's autonomy, sovereignty, and identity, you know, the best thing that can happen is that Russia's defeated in Ukraine. Uh, because then, you know, there's there's a reckoning with some of this ideology. There's a reckoning with some of the um, the the people in the institutions that that produced this. And you know, Belarus is not Georgia. It's a bigger country. Uh, it's on the borders of the European Union. Uh, there's a very strong uh, historical link with Poland and, and Lithuania. Um, and I think if, if Russia is weakened, if there's more sort of volatility at the at the imperial center in, in Moscow. Uh, Belarus has a much better chance of kind of reconsolidating and emerging as a, a truly sovereign state. Yeah, and these links with Poland and Lithuania are in the public imagination getting stronger. I mean, there's been some public opinion polling with all the caveats of the difficulty of doing very accurate public opinion right. polling in a country like Belarus. They're showing some pretty, pretty stark uh, results. When asked to identify the period of Belarusian history which contemporary Belarus should draw inspiration from. The top answer was the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, mm -hmm. followed followed by the Republic of Belarus, which lasted for exactly three years. Mm -hmm. World War One, and then and then the and then the and then the um, the the uh, Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. um, at the bottom of the list were the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. Yeah. That all really really struck me. And it kind of scanned with what we are seeing from August 2020. There are a lot of people who think that it was those protests in 2020. There are a lot of people, but some people are arguing that those protests in 2020 were one of the contributing factors to Putin's decision to move on Ukraine because he saw the the the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the contagion effect. If it could happen in Belarus, it could happen anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what I what what I think about that. The other factor to consider here. Bel There's no country more important to Russia in terms of its strategic depth, its perception of its strategic depth, than Belarus. Except maybe right? Ukraine. Except maybe Ukraine. Yeah, with the exception of Ukraine, Belarus is 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 the most important one. Every war game, whether it's uh, carried out in the in the in Russia or the West, whether by NATO or Russia, it, it usually begins with Belarus. Right. Um. But so this this is a really really fraught situation. I agree with you that a victory for Ukraine would be the best shot. The Belarusians would have uh, to 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 kind of uh, move in the direction of the West and a liberal democracy. What can in the in the meantime, where 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 do you see the West can the West do Belarus? This one's tough because Belarus is not only a very autocratic state. Uh, even before twenty twenty, was often described as the last dictatorship in Europe. Um, but now it, it's a heavily autocratic state that's under Russian domination um, and that is being used uh, as a prop for Russian military action in Ukraine. Um, the one saving grace of, of the status quo, I guess, is that Lukashenko recognizes that the war in Ukraine is not popular um, and he, he can't expect to send Belarusian forces in uh, to fight on the Russian side and still hope to stay in power. Uh, and so in a sense, that's kind of acting as a as a restraint. So strange as it may sound to us right now, it's probably better that Lukashenko stays in power than that he doesn't. Um, because I think the alternative is, you know, as long as Russia remains... Overtly pro-Russian leader, yeah. Yeah, as long as Russia remains undefeated in Ukraine, I think the alternative to Lukashenko is basically, you know, the uh, 
Belarus People's Republic or, you know, the, the Minsk People's Republic. Right. Yeah, no, it's 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 it is. Um, and the other the other thing I would add to is that uh, the only Belarusians fighting in Ukraine are fighting on the Ukrainian side. Um, the Belarusian volunteer uh, battalions that, that are fighting on the uh, on the Ukrainian side. Yeah, I mean, there isn't there aren't great options before August of 2020. I thought there were some options for the West because Lukashenko, if you remember, in that period was talking about Russia interfering in its elections, yeah, possibly. Well, it was he was he was kind of playing this kind of what I used to call the Lukashenko two step, you know, <laughs> where he would like you know, play a play footsie with the West a little bit. And he was doing that. And I, I even in testimony before the Helsinki Commission, I was I was arguing that the U.S. should should maybe try to leverage that. Uh, if you remember, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo visited Minsk um, in, in, in if I'm not mistaken, it was late 2019 or early 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Um, let's move before we get into the second half and talk about policy options more more broadly. Moldova, the bright spot, right? the bright spot. I mean, historically, you know, from the post-Soviet, most of the post-Soviet period, it was a dysfunctional state in a lot of ways. It was deeply divided. Um, yeah. Russia had so many vectors of influence there. But then something magically happened, right? 2019, uh, Vlad Plahotniuk was removed from the scene. It's really not entirely clear exactly yeah. how that happened. Um, but once he was gone and he kind of played a role similar to- He was like Ivanishvili. He was like Ivanishvili. And once you, and I, I always look at Moldova as the proof of concept mm -hmm. for Jordan, right? Once Plahotniuk was removed from the scene, suddenly the incredibly pro-Western and remarkable young woman, Maya Sandu, won election, not even in a close election, in a landslide, and then her part won control of parliament in a landslide. Um, now, Russia's still got some vectors there, um, but Moldova's the bright spot here. How do you see that one? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a bright spot, but that also makes it vulnerable. And I think we've seen, you know, speaking of proof of concept, we've seen a lot of attempts at Russian-backed disruption. And so far, these haven't succeeded. But if the scale of what we've seen in, in open source is any indication, like these are pretty serious ambitions that Russia has of destabilizing and yep. and basically taking control of Moldova. I mean, you know, Sandu said, uh, I think about six months ago, that Russia was basically organizing a coup. And they rounded up and deported, I forget exactly how many people from the Russian embassy who allegedly were participating yep. in some of this. Um, and then, you know, there's, of course, whatever's happening in, in the breakaway region of, of Transnistria plus uh, Gagauzia, which is a, um ethnic minority region. That's that's been restive, and and where they had a, a gubernatorial election not too long ago that was won by a representative of of one of these Russian-backed parties. So I, you know, I I think the the Russian campaign to destabilize uh, Moldova continues, um, but it it rests on this um, paradox that I think we've been kind of circling around, which is that public opinion in these countries, certainly in Moldova and certainly in Georgia, and maybe in Belarus, if we could actually get good data tends to be pro-Western uh, and that they see the European model as as more favorable to whatever it is that Russia's offering. And that given half a chance, they'll adopt policies and elect governments that, that want to move in that direction. And so to the extent Russia seeks to control or dominate these, these places, it has to do it through other means. Um, and that often involves the use of these kind of you know, dark arts of, of destabilization. I know I don't like the word hybrid warfare, but they, you know, that's a, a term that you could use to describe it. The non-kinetic tool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Russia is very good at it, especially in these countries that have kind of converging institutional and political histories with Russia itself. Like Russia understands how politics works in these countries because it's worked pretty much the same way as, as in Russia, uh, because they were all sort of created under the aegis of the Soviet Union. Um, now, you know, when you have these, these large-scale political transformations, whether it's, you know, Saakashvili in Georgia, Yushchenko uh, in Ukraine, you know, now Sandu in, in Moldova, part of what they're doing is they're trying to you know, rewrite the software, rewrite the operating system uh, of these countries to make them less post-Soviet uh, so that some of those institutional linkages and that kind of institutional isomorphism, to use a political science term, um, are no longer... Uh, are there. But as long as those exist, they give Russia a lot of points of, of access and entry that it's been very effective um, at taking advantage of. 
Um, and I think that, you know, with Moldova, um, the domestic situation, the domestic developments there uh, over the past couple of years have been very promising, but you still have these vulnerabilities and you still have this Russian uh, ambition of rolling back the clock or rolling back the tide. Uh, and because there's so much focus on Ukraine right now, you know, I think that there is kind of a danger that uh, some of these other uh, smaller countries, including Moldova, uh, fall off the radar screen a bit. Yeah, two kind of broad trends to kind of wrap, to kind of put a bow in this segment. Two broad trends I see happening right now. For for most of the post-Soviet period, at least until I'd say 2014 and certainly since last year, it was possible for leaders in these countries to play both sides, right? We saw we saw Kuchma and Yanukovych doing it yeah. in Ukraine, right? We saw Shevardnadze doing it mm-hmm. in Georgia. We saw various Moldovan leaders doing it in Moldova. Now, that that that's just not possible. I don't think mm-hmm. you can't really play both sides anymore. Ukraine has obviously made its choice. Moldova has made its choice. Georgia, we see this split between the society and the government. The government seems to be trying to play that old Shevardnadze, uh, Kuchma, Yanukovych game of playing both sides, but it, it's it's untenable. Yeah, Belarus, more Yanukovych. Yeah, more Yanukovych. So more Yanukovych than, than Shevardnadze. Shevardnadze, yeah. yeah. Um, and Belarus, we have the government going all in with Russia, but we have a rapidly changing society. So that's one trend I see. And then what the other thing, and you 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 alluded to it, Jeff, it's that the, the, we have the first post-Soviet generation really coming of age now mm-hmm. in all of these countries. Yeah. Um, and a lot, I mean, what I think we are seeing right now is the last stage of the breakup of the Soviet Union. It took a generation for, I mean, broke up formally in 91, but it did, you did have these ties. Now we see, that it be, and I think it's largely due to generational change, yeah. we, see, uh, we, we, we see this. Any last thoughts on this segment before we jump into the policy the second half? Yeah. Well, again, not, not, not to play political scientist, but there's a, a debate among political scientists that's gone on for a long time about the relationship between the formation of nations and the formation of states. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's a, a dialectical relationship, maybe. But um, in... Lots of the world, not so much in in Central and Eastern Europe, but in lots of the world, the states have been instrumental in creating nations. Uh, that is, once you have the institutions of a state, they do things like standardize languages and uh, create a, a national school curriculum and uh, media that create a, a coherent narrative about uh, identity and history and, and everything else, and that these institutions over time shape the way that people think about who they are and about their own uh, identity. And so I think you're right that we're seeing this process now play out in these states that have been independent for 30 some years. Um, and the the role of those institutions in consolidating a new generation of people who think about themselves as Ukrainian or Georgian or Belarusian first, rather than Soviet, uh, is finally playing out. And that kind of of change, because it's a change in the way that people think and identify, isn't something that you can roll back. I mean, short of like what Russia is trying to do in Ukraine, which is basically the wholesale erasure of 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 people and and memory. Um, and I think the Russians recognize this. They recognize that time's not on their side. Uh, so they're fighting this, this war in Ukraine, um, you know, in, in, in the full recognition that if they fail, then that's it. Like there, there's no going back to kind of the old model of Ukraine or, or any of these states, you know, being part of a post-Soviet periphery or near abroad or whatever you want to call it. And, and, and really, you, you hit on something that I wanted to just kind of touch on before we move on, and that's history. I mean, the battle over history is absolutely vital here. And again, you we, we had a, a podcast with you and my good friend Marty Kachok from the Western Ontario University of uh, uh, several months back about this. Um, in Georgia, Georgi Kandalaki, who wrote that piece for the Atlantic Council, works with this think tank called Sovlab, which is kind of reinterpreting the Soviet the, the, the history of Georgia. Um, and the fact of the matter is all of these countries have histories independent of Russia. 
um, yeah. not least of all Ukraine and Belarus, actually, yeah. which are tied to the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to say, we were talking before about, you know, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and then the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. The main language that was spoken in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, right, it wasn't Lithuanian, but it was a Slavic language that, you know, you, you can call it different things, but one thing you can call it is Old Belarus. Right. It was uh, Ruthenian, right? Well, I mean, yeah, Ruthenian is, it was a, a term that was applied by the West to different things, but um, they would have called it, you know, Ruski, but with like one S rather than two. Um, but, you know, linguistically, it's much closer to modern Belarusian than it is to Russian or Ukrainian. And, you know, Tim Snyder writes about this um, in his first book about, uh, or I guess it was his second book called The Reconstruction, Reconstruction of Nations, which is a really, really good book that, you know, for anybody who's interested in this part of the world, I would highly recommend um, how that sort of bit of historical memory got written out. And, you know, because these territories came under Russian control later on and, and were Russified, the high culture that had existed previously and the, the chancery culture uh, there was no historical memory of that. And so it was only the peasantry that like continued to speak those languages, which was then kind of rediscovered in the 19th century by intellectuals who created these new literary languages. But if you go back to like the 16th and 17th century, there's like a whole, you know, historical period where there was, you know, high culture and government institutions and, you know, participation in international diplomacy by, you know, these people who have a, a historical and geographic and linguistic connection to the people living in, in modern day, let's say, Belarus. Um, but that whole history was kind of elided under the the rule of, of the Russian czars and then the Soviet Union. Uh, and so this, this you know, how is, is history understood and taught and interpreted uh, has been an enormous uh, challenge, not just today, but I mean, going back to Peter the Great, if not earlier. Yeah, and it's not only had an effect there, it's affected how we in the West have approached this part of the world since 1991. I mean, I one of the big fallacies uh, and mistakes we made since the end of the Cold War was interpreting the histories of a lot of these countries through the Russian lens, and it took time for to 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 get to get to get over that. We tend to prioritize our relations with Russia over these other countries. Now that thankfully is 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 changing. And again, this is again part of this. What I see is this last stage. Of the yeah. breakup of, uh, uh, of 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 the uh, of the Soviet Union, because yeah, like we have our own you know, this process of generational change, but like we have diplomats now who served in Tbilisi or Kiev or mm-hmm. Minsk or you know Astana or wherever, whereas the previous generation they all went to Moscow or you know mm-hmm. they were in a consulate somewhere. But if you were doing like political work, you went to Moscow, and so you had this kind of Moscow centric understanding, and it wasn't just diplomats; it was business people. It was people in the civil society sector. It was everybody. And now, you know, there's not that single center, but there are all of these other centers. And you have people who have like real experience on the ground in these places and real relationships with people there. And so I think the way that they understand what's going on is different too. Yeah. No. So, I mean, it's changing at every level, at the university level, it's changing how we're taught the history of this part of the world. You and I got the imperial version of Russian history, like it or not, right? Even at the best, best American universities, now, the future gen- now generations of, of, of American students are getting, I would argue, a much more accurate version of history. It's something I tell my students. I said, I, I learned the wrong history of this part of the mm-hmm. world. I'm going to do my best to teach you the right history of yeah. this part of the world. That's a great way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and broaden the aperture to look at Russia's overall strategy in the former Soviet space and how the West can and should counter it. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Political Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Ryan Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How in legacies shape international security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the United States Department of Defense. 
I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the website, formerly known as Twitter, at Power Vertical. And you can also now follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоним вас. С новым веком. So speaking at the Tbilisi International Conference last week, Anna Kuchenbecker of the European Council on Foreign Relations said the following. If Russia loses in Ukraine, it will, it will want revenge. If it wins, it will want more. Either way, we will be dealing with a revanchist Russia. I think this is accurate. Although in an article for Foreign Policy last year, I argued that a Ukrainian victory would lead to a 1989 moment in which Moscow's ability to project power would be limited and a window of opportunity would open up for Georgia, Moldova, and perhaps even Belarus. Either way, the West badly needs a broad strategy for the region. Jeff, in your foreign policy article, you laid out some policy wrecks for Moldova, Georgia, and Belarus. Can you share some of these with our listeners? Sure. Well, I think over the longer term, and, and we've been talking about this already, the most important thing is giving these countries a genuine Euro-Atlantic perspective. And I know that's a thing that gets talked about a lot, but I think it gets talked about in very abstract terms. Um, but giving ordinary people and elites in these countries the real sense that if they do the hard work of carrying out these reforms, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I've made the comparison in the past uh, with Turkey, which was a country that was uh, given, uh, with which the EU opened membership uh, about membership talks about two decades ago. Um, they closed one chapter uh, of those accession talks, and then it all basically stalled out. And I think without the lure of membership, without the uh, progress down that path, I think what you had happen was that the incentive structure that existed that was encouraging the Turkish government, led by the same Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, who leads it today, the commitment to carrying out those reforms faded. Um, the belief on the part of the public that they would ever actually cross the finish line to EU membership faded. And even though the, the membership talks have never been terminated, nobody really believes, I think, in either Turkey or the European Union today that that membership process is going to be concluded. And we see what it's done as far as the political and strategic development of, of Turkey. Um, And, you know, I think something similar has happened in Georgia since 2008, yep. where the promise of NATO accession was given. But then uh, as soon as uh, Russian forces had intervened and, and occupied South Ossetia and Abkhazia, um, the momentum stalled. And, you know, kind of ritualistically at, at progressive NATO summits, there's a, a nod to the language of the, the Bucharest communique. Um, but in terms of practical steps to actually make it happen, you know, it, it, it's not there. And we're 15 years on from, from Bucharest and uh, not a lot has, has been done, especially on the Georgian side. And in Ukraine, there's been a little bit more, but much of that is a, pro a product of things that have happened in the last year or so. Uh, so be, be realistic about what it's going to take to integrate these countries into these Euro-Atlantic institutions. And part of that means transforming these institutions uh, in such a way that it can accommodate them. And that's going to be a bigger lift when it comes to Ukraine, because it's a big country. Uh, and it's also a country that's going to need a lot of, of reconstruction aid at the end of this war. Um, but it also means having the political will, which it's not it's not the political will of the institutions per se, so much as it is of, of the member states, to say, okay, we know Russia doesn't like this. We know Russia objects, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, And I think, again, getting there is, excuse me, is going to be a lot easier uh, if Russia is defeated in Ukraine. Uh, to get to the point that you were making at the, at the beginning of this segment, I do think that uh, Russia is going to be, uh, you know, if either 
revanchist in the event of defeat or further increasingly ambitious in the event of victory. But that I don't think there's much we don't there's not much we can do about that. What I think is within our capability is to make sure that Russia suffers a defeat to the extent that its ability to act on those kind of revanchist sentiments is, is much more limited, not just vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, but vis-a-vis -vis these other countries. Yeah, no, and I, I'm watching the clock now. I know I'm, I, I realize our time is limited, but there's another thing I wanted to get here, and you just kind of touched on it. While the West is creating a certain set of incentive structures, Moscow's creating incentive structures of its own that are sometimes coercive, but sometimes just... Uh, you know, the, 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 the use of corruption and, and other means to mm -hmm. kind of capture states. A Georgian official once said the magic word when you're talking to Western officials is transparency. The magic word when you're talking to Russian officials is kickback, right? Um, and so one way of summarizing Russia's policy in the region is that Moscow primarily pursues a policy of state capture, mm -hmm. primarily. When that fails, then it pursues a policy of land capture, right? In other words... <laughs> It it, 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 uh, it seeks to expand by non-kinetic means first and only resource to kinetic warfare when that is unsuccessful. Um, would you agree with that? And what should we be doing in the interim in addition to these incentive structures? Because Russia is also creating incentives. Yeah. But I would add one additional phase, maybe even before state capture, which is elite capture, mm -hmm. um, which is a thing that we've seen Russian actors do in much of Western Europe in the United States uh, and elsewhere, because I think they figured out that you don't need to control the entire political apparatus if you have a few well-placed individuals who can make uh, critical decisions on your behalf. And they're relatively cheap, you know, a few million dollars here and there uh, paying off the right people and, and you're in pretty good shape. Um, so I, I would, I guess, structure it, you know, elite capture, state capture, and then you know, and as you said, land, land capture. Yeah. Uh, well, so partial land capture, and then if that fails, totally. Right. Um, so, yeah, how do you uh, push back against that? And that's been a, a real challenge. And I think that's the challenge that we face, especially in Georgia, uh, among the three states that we've been talking about. Um, because, you know, as, as long as those kind of corrupt uh, entities control the levers of state, we're not going to be able to give them a better deal, right? We're not going to be able to say, hey, you know, we're not going to outbid the Russians for their support. Um, we can put sanctions on them. Um, that has some impact, uh, but I think we've seen Russia and China and, and others become increasingly effective at uh, working around these sanctions. Uh, so I, I think the focus really has to be uh, not on the current ruling elites, but on other levels, you know, whether that's counter elites, whether that's on democratic mobilization, whether that's on institution building, but that's hard. It's hard because there's a learning process that goes on on the other side. And the Russians have been at the forefront of this about how do you constrict the space available for civil society? How do you um, conduct something that looks uh, on the surface like democratic participatory politics, but that actually has these kind of manipulated uh, outcomes uh, underneath. So it's it, it's not easy, but I think the, the focus on uh, going after corruption, uh, going after assets, and then institution building uh, outside the state uh, are, are going to be really important. Yeah. And the, I mean, the West really has to play a long game. We've lost a little bit of time in, in this and that. And, and Russia didn't lose any time because it already had all of its incentive structures in place from the Soviet time uh, going forward. And, um, and I, again, it's easier and cheaper to capture, you know, three or four oligarchs than it is to build a popular movement. Right, right. And it's and it's it is leaky to create these sanctions regimes or to exclude these uh, pro-Russian elites from Western financial institutions. So that that, that that's tricky. I think We've moved, we've made giant leaps in the last 18 months compared to the previous 20, 30 years, right? We've really moved a lot of these, um, you know, closing the ability to kind of facilitate this, this, this kleptocratic form of elite capture and state capture that Russia has 
effectively mobilized. We're bumping up against the end here. If I if I keep going, I'm going to get sanctioned myself by my production <laughs> team. Is there, is there anything you want to add before we wrap it up for this week, Jeff? Um, well, just that I think I kept the focus on these three countries because they're kind of on the front lines, but the kind of phenomena we've been talking about are not limited to them. Um, you should do a, a podcast sometime on the Western Balkans, which is another, uh, you know, frontline area where some of these same processes are, are playing out. Um, and that at the end of the day, I think what happens in Ukraine is going to have huge implications for the future of the region and the future of Russia itself. Yeah, we're watching that closely. We're all rooting for the Ukrainian forces to get to Melitopol and to Berdyansk because that will change the game. But that's that's to be seen in the future. So on that note, we'll wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies, that's a mouthful, and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. And I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the MDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Jeff, thanks for an enlightening discussion and making all of us a whole lot smarter. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Regas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the platform, formerly known as Twitter, at Power Vertical. And you can also now follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. Join us again next week when I will have Mikhail Vigar on the podcast discuss his important new book, War and Punishment. Putin, Zelensky, and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine, a great title for a great book. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 